Well, you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. That's the text that the Lord in his providence has given us to focus on this morning as we make our way verse by verse through this gospel of Luke. As we make our way through this book, it's amazing how the Lord puts us in the very text that he puts us in each week, and that is by his providence. It's not an accident. It's not luck. Uh, he uses it in his sovereignty, and this is the particular text that he's using to sanctify his people today. So this is a wonderful text that we'll spend two weeks in, and the Lord is going to use it mightily in our hearts. Let's read it, Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What a passage. I wish I could just explain all of this right now to you. We're going to take a couple weeks to do it because there's so much here. But what we're seeing in this section of scripture is Christ's struggle against temptation and against grief through prayer. Christ's struggle against temptation and against grief through prayer. In other words, we are hours now away from the cross, and this section depicts Christ's struggle against temptation, and the passage is entirely about prayer, the whole thing. So I've entitled the message, Christ's Struggle Against Temptation Through Prayer. That's the main point, and this is part one. 
And so the Lord is now hours away from the cross. He's hours away, around 16 hours away from the cross to be more exact at this point. He's completed his time in the upper room with the disciples. And he now faces temptation, the likes of which we will never know as he did. Though Christ is completely sovereign, though he's sovereign over all of the events of the cross, though he's in complete control at every point in going to the cross, as we have seen recently, Luke has made a point to show us that Christ is in complete control at every point of this journey. This is a sovereign work in his heading to the cross. Luke has deliberately shown us that. This is a willing substitutionary death. But though he's sovereign, though he's overall, all of the events, though through every aspect down to the minutest detail was the predetermined plan of God, though Christ is in his nature, his divine nature, perfect and uncorruptible, even while on earth he could never sin, Christ in his flesh, even though all that is true, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 5 that Christ in the days of his flesh would suffer. He would suffer. And what would he suffer? He would suffer unparalleled temptation. And he would suffer unimaginable sorrow and grief. These combined with the afflictions of the cross, the sorrow, the grief, the temptation, the affliction that would make up his sufferings while he was here on earth in the flesh. In fact, if you don't understand that, the scripture characterizes Jesus Christ as the suffering, what? Servant. That's how he's characterized in scripture. In regards to temptation, and as a sign of his humanity, he was able to be tempted on earth. As a sign of his genuine humanity, we see that Christ was able to be tempted on earth, though he was absent of a sinful nature. And you have to understand this now. Jesus's temptation. Now we're just talking about this category of temptation when it comes to Jesus Christ, the son of God in the days of his flesh. When we talk about the category of temptations, Jesus's temptations came all from the outside. He was absent of any sinful nature. They came from the outside. They came from Satan and they came from the sinful world around Jesus. Hebrews 4.15 says this. Listen close. It says, He was tempted in all things, yet without what? Sin. In other words, that is to say, Jesus never gave in to temptation, but also 
That's to say that nor did he have a sinful nature, which would be the source of any act of sin. And so Jesus never gave in to temptation by sinning in any way ever. He never sinned in any way ever. Nor did he have a sinful nature that would be the source of any act of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he knew no sin. Hebrews 7.26 says that he's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. That's the description of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just by way of contrast for a moment, James says the source of our temptation is from within. So oftentimes people blame the temptation or their sin on the circumstances or the factors surrounding them. James says that our sin is so woven into the fabric of our nature, even as new creations in Christ, even though you're new creation in Christ, we are still in the flesh and sin resides within us. And so if you're going to blame someone for your sin, most often blame yourself and your own sin. But the sin resides in us. Listen, even if you are a new creation in Christ, you are fighting against your sinful nature to hold on to, to cling to your sin, and you're fighting to become righteous. That's the fight of your life as a Christian. Your nature, your desire, and your sinful nature prefers sin. Before you were born again, you were so enamored by your sin that you were blinded to the glories of Jesus Christ until God regenerated you and you saw the truth for what it is. And then you were saved by faith. But you're so enamored with sin and you freely choose it. You freely choose it. And sin resides within us now, even as believers in Christ, even though we are new creations, we are still in the flesh. And so our impulses that are innate to our own fallenness prove that we desire sin. We're tempted to continue in and to hold on to and to go back to our sin. James says each one of you is tempted when he's tempted by his own flesh. And he gives way to that rather than to become righteous or to become holy or to become pure. Now, to be sure, we're also tempted by Satan and also tempted by the world. You have to understand, but your sin from your flesh is the most frequent source of your temptation, your own self, your sinful nature. But we're also tempted by Satan. First Thessalonians calls Satan the tempter, the tempter. So you're battling against your own flesh, your own sin. You're battling against Satan's temptation. But we're also tempted by the world, aren't we? Right? First John tells us that the world tempts us with the lust of the eyes, which you can gather, get from the world. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh, that which would satisfy your sinful flesh. 
And it says the world tempts us with the pride of life. That we might become great in this world. That's the temptation of this world. That's why people leave their families to pursue fame or to pursue greatness in this world and willing to sacrifice every other thing for it. The temptation of the world. So Satan uses these temptations in our lives, but listen, Satan also used the temptations of the world at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Remember this in Matthew chapter four? So Jesus is tempted from the outside by Satan and by the world. Our section today in Luke chapter 22 is the second of Jesus' two major temptations. The first one, remember, was in Matthew chapter 4. We see the picture of that, right? It's the beginning of his earthly ministry. Matthew chapter 4, Satan tempted Jesus with the temptations of, of this world. He wanted Jesus to forsake the cross and to get all the glory without the cross. He wanted Jesus not to go to the cross to die for sinners, but to just be glorified without it. Satan didn't want Jesus to start heading to the cross. And listen, the passage that we're in today proves that Satan didn't want Jesus to finish his work on the cross. Satan doesn't want you to start, and Satan doesn't want you to finish. That's his work. So... Through his life in the flesh, he was facing unparalleled temptation. Temptation from the outside. And we'll talk about what his temptation was in this passage. But not only was he facing temptation, Jesus was facing unimaginable sorrow and grief. In fact, Isaiah characterizes Jesus as the man of what? Sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. That's what Jesus is described as in Isaiah 53. And we've seen throughout Luke's gospel all these points of grieving by Jesus. He was sorrowful about Israel's unbelief, remember? He was sorrowful about the Jews' false faith. They were screaming Hosanna when he was entering Jerusalem and they were, they were uh, praising and lifting their hands. They had expectations of the Messiah and it looked like they were worshiping him and praising him as he was entering into Jerusalem. But Jesus seeing them, he wept because he knew that their praise was superficial, that it was based upon their own expectations and that in just a few days, they would all turn on him because he wasn't exactly what he wanted him to be. They wanted him to be. Jesus wept about that. Jesus wept about the religious, was grieved by the religious leadership. He was grieved by sin and grieved by the reality of death. Now, all of this is just an introduction to help you understand this man, Jesus Christ, was full of grief and sorrow. And he was tempted in his flesh, in the days of his flesh. You have to understand, Jesus was grieved by reality. He was grieved by reality. In fact, we never see Jesus laughing, joking, 
or focused on any trivialities. And it doesn't mean it's sinful to do that. Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time for that, a time to rejoice. Philippians tells us to rejoice. God tells us that the fruit of the Spirit includes joy. Jeremiah tells us that God rejoices. John 15 says Jesus is joyful. 1 Timothy tells us God is happy. Psalm 1 tells us the way for us to be happy in God. And so, and so that's not a sin, but Jesus was constantly focused on reality. He was serious. He was intentional. He was sorrowful. He was full of grief, and he was consistently tempted. Think about this. Jesus knew the reality of life and death. He knew the reality of obedience and disobedience. He knew the reality of salvation and judgment, of sin and wrath. He was rejected. He saw superficial followers. He saw the pointlessness of striving after this life and what this world has to offer. He was grieved by those who pursued the world, the riches, the positions, the reputations, and who rejected him as the eternal source of salvation. And most of all, he was grieved from his coming separation from the Father. And I want to note here that most, listen now, some of the most, listen, some of the most godly, Christ-like, spiritually mature Christians are often the most serious and sorrowful. Some of the most mature believers in Christ are also the most serious and the most sorrowful because they see reality. They see the reality of sin. They see the reality of the world's pursuits. They, they're disenchanted by the world's pursuits. They see the reality of heaven and hell. They know the brevity of life. They know that this world doesn't matter or mean anything except for what you do for Christ. They see the rejection of God's truth. They know the people that other people are just flippantly celebrating with are also going to hell and they're not being told about Christ. They see those who claim to be Christians but know that it's not according to the truth and therefore not real. They know that there's wrong kingdom expectations, wrong messianic expectations. And there are people that know that the only thing that matters is to love God, obey God, and serve Christ. And so that's the paradox. Some of the most mature Christians are the most serious and the most consistently sorrowful because they see reality. And let me tell you, the other paradox is those Christians also have the most deep lasting and real joy because the only thing they do is depend on God. Second Corinthians six tells us that we are people who are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And so listen now, Christ in his flesh suffered this unparalleled temptation, this unimaginable grief because of reality, the temptation to forsake the cross and we're getting a picture of it right here. In the flesh, Christ suffered, suffered this 
And in this passage today, it marks the pinnacle. It marks the the most uh, explicit point in which we see Jesus being tempted and suffering the grief. The temptation was to forsake the cross. The temptation was to cling to his holiness and cling to the Father. And the temptation was to call upon a legion of angels and to forsake the cross, to avoid separation from the Father. He would, in just a few hours, become sin on our behalf and be separated from the Father, which he never knew before. He's never known that. He would suffer God's wrath. He wasn't afraid of the death. He was afraid of the separation of the Father. He was being tempted to cling to his holiness in his rightful position and avoid going to the cross. And he was grieved by the coming separation that would be between him and the Father. In Hebrews 5, it refers to this moment that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Loud crying and tears. In our chapter in verse 53, just look at verse 53. He calls this the hour and the power of, in the NASB, darkness. The hour and the power of darkness. Right now, darkness, temptation, grief. Jesus tells the disciples in this story to watch and pray that they don't fall into temptation. And so Jesus is being tempted. Jesus is telling his disciples to pray so he won't be tempted, which is the, they won't fall into temptation, which is the very thing that Jesus is doing, praying that he would not fall into temptation. And he's sorrowful and grieved. This is not only sorrow, this is temptation. And the sorrow of the coming separation. He was about to face his father's anger. And so in this section, Jesus is so overwhelmed that in Mark's account and Matthew's account, that's why we're taking two weeks, there's just so much here when you combine all of this. And this speaks so much to us doctrinally that we need to understand. But in Mark's account and Matthew's account, Jesus says it this way, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. So grieved, so overwhelmed, so tempted, so sorrowful, That he literally cannot bear it. It feels as if he's one step away from dying. This is a unique once for all event. You are not Jesus in this situation. Jesus is Jesus. This happens one time. But we can surely relate. And Jesus does two things in this section that we're going to see. He consumes himself with prayer. These aren't the points, but these are just two major things that happen. He consumes himself with prayer, and then he instructs his disciples to do the same. He's being tempted. He's facing sorrow. He consumes himself with prayer in response. He's an example to 
the disciples, but not only does he consume himself with prayer, he also his, instructs his disciples to do the same in response to temptation. Jesus sets an example and an attitude in prayer. Jesus shows us honesty in prayer. Jesus shows us submission in prayer. He commands to pray. He withdraws to pray. He displays the posture of prayer. We hear his very words in prayer. We see him rising from prayer, and we see him returning to prayer. We've already seen him come out of the upper room in John's gospel, John chapter 17, before leaving the upper room. We see what is called the high priestly prayer, where the longest prayer we see of Jesus, we can just see him communicating with the Father. You can look at that at another time. We don't see a ton of words here, so there's mystery, but we can assume what's being said in some ways. But Jesus here, as he heads to the cross, will now face extreme temptation, extreme sorrow, and he will turn to his Father in prayer. He's an example to his disciples. He instructs his disciples and listen. You and I, from this section, can learn to pray as we face temptation, as we face sorrow, and we can follow his example. And let me tell you that as this section closes, Jesus rises from prayer. The temptation is finished at the end. It's as if someone pressed the relief button, and he gets up. And at that point, he walks steadfastly to the cross. No one's gonna stand in his way. He will accept the fate. He will accept the task. All of this coming forth from this hour of prayer. And so, what are we gonna see in Jesus praying to the Father in this section? Well, we're gonna see four points. This morning, we'll only look at the first. We're gonna see desperation. In verses 39 through 41, we're going to see dependence. In verses 42 through 43, we're going to see distress, verse 44, and we're going to see defeat in verses 45 through 46. Jesus' example in going to the Lord in prayer, fighting temptation through prayer, is that number one, we're gonna see the characteristic of desperation. Secondly, we're gonna see the characteristic of Jesus' prayer life here as dependence. Third, we're gonna see him feel distress within this prayer. And fourthly, we'll see that there is a, for those who are submitting to God, there will be defeat of these temptations and these griefs. Let's look at the first one this morning. Verse 39 through 41, we see desperation. Chapter 22, verse 39. It says, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter 
into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. What a powerful few verses. Verse 39, let's walk through it as we see the desperation that Jesus had and how his response was to pray. Verse 39, it says, and he came out. You see it? Keep your text open and look at it with me because you want to be able to see this text and understand the authorial intent of it. He came out. Well, where did he come out from? And you guys know in the context of this, as we proceed through this narrative, he came out of the upper room. He came out of the upper room. That's where he came out of. Where he finished making clear to his disciples that he was eager to eat the Passover meal with them. He was looking forward to that. That during that meal, he would make clear by interweaving it with the Passover, he would make clear of his substitutionary atoning death for repentant sinners to avoid God's judgment if they trust in his blood by faith. He makes that clear. He makes clear the new covenant that followers of God are made followers through faith. God holds on. God changes the heart. This is sealed by his blood. This is no longer ceremonially um, in effect. The old covenant is gone. And so he makes all of this clear. He is overcoming each aspect of the trials that he will face. He comes out of the upper room after explaining to the disciples all the assortment of responses that will come in response to him and his death. Remember this, all the disciples, and they're going to be proud. Judas is going to reject. Peter's going to be tempted. Satan's going to try to prove their false faith. The world's going to reject. So he gives all this information as to how he's going to overcome all of this. And he prepares the disciples. And now at this point, listen, it's, Friday morning. It's probably past midnight at this point on Friday. And he's like a lamb moving to his slaughter. He comes out of the upper room. Where did he go? Well, verse 39 tells us. To the Mount of Olives. That's where he went. And it says that he went to the Mount of Olives as was his custom. He came out of the upper room. We know what happened there. We know about what time it's, it is. And he came out and he went to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom. You remember this. We've talked about it over and over. Every night of Passion Week since Saturday, he would retreat to Bethany, to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. That was his pattern into Jerusalem, out to Bethany every night where he would stay with them. Now, Bethany was on the backside of the Mount of Olives, the southeastern slope. You can just look up a picture anytime you want, and it's just pretty clear. But this time, rather than going all the way to the backside of the slope, 
from Jerusalem up the mountain, down the mountain to the home of Bethany, uh, to the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha and Bethany. Here, instead of going all the way, he, John tells us, stops at a garden, John chapter 18. So this is across the Kidron Valley. Matthew and Mark tell us that it's a garden called Gethsemane. Luke doesn't tell us here. He just tells us he went to the Mount of Olives, which Gethsemane means olive press. And so what we know is Jesus is heading out of Jerusalem. Instead of heading all the way to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house, he stops somewhere along the way on the front side of the Mount of Olives to a garden called Olive Press. And we can assume here that this garden on the Mount of Olives was somewhere they stopped frequently. And I'll show you why we can know that in a moment. But what we can assume is that this was a, a place in which they would stop probably every night as they are heading back to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house, that they would stop for a second to take a break. It was probably owned by a Christian, just like there was a Christian man probably that provided the upper room when his disciples went, a follower of Jesus who would allow his disciples and Jesus to eat the Passover meal in the upper room. This is probably a follower of Jesus who would allow Jesus and his disciples to stop mid-course on their way from Jerusalem to Bethany to stay here at this garden. And this is where now they are at this morning, Friday morning, early. And so the disciples probably went there often with Jesus on the way to rest. And it's somewhere among the trees of the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus at this point is, is anticipating his betrayal. You have to understand that. This is intentional. Jesus stopping here, listen, is intentional. How do we know that this is a place in which they stopped? And how do we know this is intentional, that Jesus is stopping here? He's on a one-way road to the cross, and he's stopping here on purpose because John 18.2 says that this was a place that Judas knew this place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas had been released from the table, the disciples and Jesus leave the upper room. They head up the Mount of Olives. They stop at this place, the olive press, the garden, the, the garden on the mountain in which Jesus had often been at with the disciples and a place in which Judas would know where he was. Now, remember, remember how Jesus orchestrated his time in the upper room. He didn't let anybody know beforehand where he was going so that Judas couldn't betray him there. He had things to do. Now, he's going to a place in which Judas would know exactly where he was. It was time for him to head to the cross. And the disciples, verse 39, looked down, followed him. So, there he is. Jesus and the 11 in this garden on the way to the cross on the Mount of Olives, and when he came to the place, verse 40, look at it. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. When he came to the place, he said to them. Matthew and Mark tell us at this point, listen now, at this point, 
Matthew and Mark's account tell us that he left the eight and he took Peter, James, and John a little further with him. So imagine this. He gets to the garden when he came to the place. That means when he got to this garden, he left the eight a little further and then he brought Peter, James, and John a little bit further in with him about a stone's throw away. That's figurative language, a figure making this a picture of reality. It was pretty close to him. He brought James, John, and Peter that they would see what was going on, but further back would be the eight. And so he, verse 41, left them about a, look down at verse 41, he left them about a stone's throw away. So, and by the way, the other accounts tell us that Jesus would come back to Peter, James, and John three times, three times, and we'll get into that next week. He would come back to them three times and find them asleep. And so, listen, here's the picture. We're in the garden. Jesus leaves the eight. He brings the three a little further. And now we get into where we see what Jesus' heart and mindset were at at this point. Verse 40, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. We know that Jesus at this point, and I'll show you in a minute, was already feeling the desperation of the hour. He was already feeling this. As they were making the journey, Satan's temptation surely was in full effect. That Jesus would cling to his holiness, his position as son, his fellowship, his unbroken fellowship with the Father, his sinlessness, and forsake the cross. It began to be excruciating to forsake the cross, to call upon a legion of angels, But for the disciples, their temptation would be, as he tells them here, to to pray that they wouldn't fall into temptation. Their temptation would be to permanently turn away or to stop him from the cross. Verse 31 in this same chapter said that Satan was going to sift them like wheat, try to prove their true or false faith. Jesus is telling them to pray that they wouldn't walk away. And... And so we see that he is telling them to pray so they don't enter into temptation. They don't fall prey to temptation. And that's exactly what he was about to do. He knew what to do not to fall into temptation. But he was telling them what to do. He was telling them what to do. And so they're all here facing and beginning to face this grave temptation. For Christ, the temptation was unparalleled and unimaginable. But we know that he was already feeling this temptation and this desperation and that his response to desperation was prayer because of what happens next. Look at verse 41. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. When he left them, he knelt and prayed. Now you have to understand, Luke condenses here. Luke condenses here at this place. Mark's account says he was greatly distressed and troubled And he said at this point, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed. 
You know that at this time, the custom was to stand and to pray. Luke tells us he knelt, but that doesn't give us the full picture. Mark's account tells us he was very sorrowful, even to the point of death. And going on a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed. Matthew's account says it even stronger. Matthew's account says that he fell on his face. Hebrews 5 tells us that this time was full of loud crying and tears. This was the greatest temptation and the greatest moment of sorrow that Jesus would face. Jesus was tempted to abandon the cross. He was tempted to to maintain his perfect unity with the Father and not be separated, become sin on our behalf. And subsequently, his disciples would face a temptation to stop him and to turn away. Now, you have to understand that there was also a feeling of sorrow because of the rejection, because of the nation's sin, because of the physical death. But the main sorrow and temptation was separation from the Father. And this was so severe. Listen now, you have to understand this. At this point, coming into the garden, leaving the eight, bringing the three closer, and as he leaves the three, he can only make it a stone's throw away before he falls on his face. He was desperate. Can you imagine It was so severe, his only response was dependence on God in prayer. He turns to God in prayer. He tells his disciples to do this again, uh, to do the same. He drops off the disciples. He couldn't get there fast enough to get alone with God, and he falls over in prayer. You ever feel like that? You're so distressed by temptation. by grief and sorrow because of sin, the sin of the world, the sin of those around you, that you just, you can't drop your family off in the living room fast enough to get inside your room, close the door, and fall on your face. The key aspect of prayer, the first key aspect that we see is That involves desperation. Desperation for for God to act. When we're desperate, you don't try to keep standing and to fix things on your own. You fall on your face to depend on God. The only thing that Jesus did here was seek his father. I imagine here, we we see some words, we see some words, and as we close this, as we, we see some words here that we'll see later on in this section. 
It's not many. But I imagine at this point, as Roman 8 tells us, that because Jesus, we know, was full of the Holy Spirit, Roman 8 tells us that there's groanings too deep for words. He, he, you, you're so grieved by trial and distress, you don't even have enough energy to put words together. You're just laying on your face and groaning. Imagine that's where Jesus is at at this moment. He's so distressed in his responses, prayer. And so the first vital aspect that we see in prayer as Jesus faces this severe temptation, sorrow, and trouble is that in this, in this desperation, he turns to prayer and tells his disciples in anticipation and preparation to do the same. And so what we can learn is that this must be our response. That you would go to God in your desperation through prayer. That you would pray so that you don't give in to temptation. And so that you can depend on God in your sorrow and grief. When you're grieved, when you're sorrowful, when you're troubled, when you can't bear the weight and no longer stand on your feet for another two seconds, the response of us as Christians needs to be following Christ's example to fall on our knees, on our face, in prayer and to depend on God. Where do you go in your desperation? And do you turn to God in prayer as your response? Let that be true of your life. Let that be true now. That if you're desperate for anything, if you feel the weight and distress of anything in your life, let your first response be to, to go home and to fall on your face before God and to depend on him in prayer. That's what Jesus' response was in his distress. Let's pray. Father, we come and, and we ask you to make this true of us. Make this true of us, Lord. When we are desperate, when we are facing temptation and suffering and grief, and trial. Let us be people who, who can't get to you fast enough, who seek time and a moment in solitude to get away and to fall on our face before you and to cry out to you even if we can't put words together. As we see the Savior heading to the cross, you give us a, a real glimpse, an honest glimpse of the temptation fighting against him to keep him back from the cross. We see an honest picture here of Jesus preparing the disciples through prayer for the temptations and the sorrow and the grief that will come their way. And so as you prepare us now through this section, you instruct us now to pray through this section. You instruct us to pray in preparation for our trials and our sufferings and our temptations. 
Let us first be people who respond to our distress by inclining ourselves to prayer. That's the first step. If we're gonna learn any other characteristics about prayer in this section, we must first learn that our first response must be prayer. That's gotta be the first step for us, that our first response is prayer. Let that be true of us. In Jesus' name, amen.